think that's the best introduction anybody's ever given me. That's great. I love you, John. And I am delighted to be here with you. Uh, this, this is a treat for me. I, I, I feel a kinship to the ministry of this congregation that uh, goes beyond just a passing interest, um, that, that there are people I, I know and love here. Um, there, there is a lot in the life of this church that, that represents um, some the, the, the gift of, of spiritual vision uh, that originated in our days together at uh, First Baptist Shreveport, and it's just delightful to see you all give expression to that, anchored in this unique uh, community and finding ways to translate the gospel into action on a, on a daily basis. I, I do have to take a, bit, uh, a moment more to, to celebrate my good news. When, when you were asking for celebrations, uh, I said, well, I, it really wouldn't be good for me to stand up and share my celebration before I've even been introduced. But uh, now I have been introduced, and i got to say a little bit more. Um, th- this whole uh, last few months has been gearing up toward the first child uh, of our, our older daughter. We have two granddaughters by our son. They live in Olathe, Kansas, same town we live in, Kansas City metropolitan area. We get to see them all the time. Michelle and her husband Mike live in San Diego. They have been um, uh, yearning, longing for a child for, for some time. We've walked through the period of her preparation and, and in fact being good planners like Priscilla and I are, we went ahead and got airline tickets to go to San Diego on February 1 and I knew I was coming here so I got them for the first and return flight on the 8th to Kansas City so I'd have time to drive down here. This little, this little uh, baby did not cooperate with our plans. We were concerned she would come early. Instead, she lingered long enough that I had to leave San Diego and fly home um, in time to drive down here. And there's two sides of, of a parent's life. There's a selfish and an unselfish side. The, the unselfish side of me cared about what my daughter wanted. She did not want to have labor induced. She wanted it to start naturally. I wanted her to wait until I got back on Monday. Um, and so I was torn between the two, and, and the good father in me allowed that, you know, it would happen, that'd be a good thing. So she went into labor yesterday, and um, we, we're thankful beyond just the fact that, that Audrey Bird Souza is now alive. And I have a picture uh, that was uh, dutifully texted to me uh, this morning at, at uh, three something in the morning. Because, you know, tw- just after midnight there is just after two here. So, um, Anyway, um, during, during uh, contractions, um, there was some distress, and they quickly decided they needed to get her in and do a C-section. And it turned out the umbilical cord was around little Audrey's neck. And uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful for doctors and hospitals and monitors and, and what we have learned and um, all, all that comes with that to give us the gift of this life. Uh, and we know all beh- behind all of that is a good and gracious God. So, okay, I've done my celebration, the luxury of standing behind the pulpit. I get to expand on it. But, but let's do turn to this topic, and, and in doing so, I, I do want to call your attention to these words in Jeremiah 29, verse 13, that says, If you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
Now, I'm going to ask a question right now. You don't have to answer it out loud. You have permission to if you'd like, but I'm not putting you on the spot. The question is, do you believe that? I mean, do, do you really honestly believe that? I grew up in a Christian home, surrounded by people of faith, immersed in a culture that believed that, that taught that, that uh, worshipped in, in that uh, regard, and uh, I accepted that. I made my personal commitment to follow Jesus and, and ha have, have spent my life with an abiding sense that I was, I was buoyed up on a sea of grace every day of my life. That even in the times when I wasn't particularly feeling close to God, God was still there. God was ever-present. God was the source of wisdom. God was the source of provisions. God was the source of relationships. God was the source of all good things. And, um, and I could count on God. And, and that grew to be true over time in the face of all kinds of challenges and difficulties. But the question, do you believe that, struck home for me in a profoundly new way after a period of experiencing God's silence as I had never experienced it before. I've been asked, how would you describe what it feels like to have God absent after you've experienced God's presence? And how do you even experience God's presence? I, in the course of my book, wrestle with some of those things because um, if you really stop to think about it, when it comes to relationship with God, we can use comparison language. We can, we can grab picture language to, to, to somehow express what it's like to experience God's presence and what it's like to experience God's absence. But ultimately, it lies beyond the five senses, doesn't it? I mean, we're talking about a spiritual reality. It's part of the reason that Jesus, in talking to Nicodemus in the dark of night, as recorded in John chapter 3, actually talks about how it's necessary for us to be born again, or it could be translated born from above. Something of a spiritual sensibility has to be engaged for us to notice God's presence and sense God's absence. So uh, through the years, I've picked up on... God's presence in a variety of ways. I've, I've sensed it on the breeze in the day. Have you ever been outside and um, been calm enough in spirit, looked up at the sky or been under the trees or been under the stars and uh, whatever the circumstance might be, you um, feel a kind of inner refreshing. It, it's a wordless sense of well-being that steals over you and seems to relax all of the taut muscles, all of the tension inside. And there is just this simple awareness and the peace of heart and mind that comes with it. That, that's one of those places where I've experienced God's presence. I, I've experienced God's presence in a hospital room next to somebody on the brink of death. When prompted by this odd sort of notion that I ought to actually pray out loud for what I know is an impossibility. 
and then to go ahead and act on it, to pray that God would actually heal this person, and then to get news later, because it was an out-of-town trip, that the person was out of ICU and getting better. I've, I've had that experience. I've, I've experienced God's presence when um, I've needed direction from God. And somewhere in all of the checklists of the pros and the cons and the conversations with confidants, I've, I've done all of the analysis but found myself still torn between alternatives and finally in some kind of unspeakable moment in the stillness there comes a clarity of mind as if the answer has been dropped in my lap. To have that sense for me has been to have the sense of the living presence of the wise and guiding God. I've had experiences of that kind and other kinds as well. There have actually been moments in my life when God has broken through and spoken into my inner ear. I say into my inner ear because nobody around me heard it. But I did. And in fact, it, it lay behind my sense of calling in ministry. As a, I, um, um, at the summer between my sophomore year and junior year in high school, out on a hillside outside of our church in New Jersey, doing some youth things that day, doing some preparation for ministry. We'd gone outside on the hillside uh, and circled up and had a time of prayer together. And in the course of that kind of uh, time of prayer, an inner voice spoke up and said, Greg, be a preacher. So I lay that kind of background hoping that there are points of identification for you, but also as a way of saying that I didn't come to this moment in my spiritual crisis without some history of the presence of God. And even beyond that, an abiding sense of God's presence. After all, I remember the youth leader who said, um, faith is, is not about feeling." If you just rely on feeling, there, be, there are going to be times when your feelings just aren't there. And if you rest your faith on feeling, it won't, it won't last. And, and that made an awful lot of sense to me because life sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense. So I could accept that um, and, and, and thereby just sort of have this assumption that became that, that sort of a sea of grace awareness. That even when I wasn't feeling it, God was there holding me up. So um, then there came this time. Uh, and I suddenly became aware of God's silence. I think it's worth asking, how would you actually come to awareness that God's not there? And... What I have to say is um, that under the circumstances, I, I had really been uh, caught between two impulses in the direction of my life and wanted to make sure that I lived my sense, my life, with a responsiveness to God's calling. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't just because I'm a minister and ministers have callings. I think every human being lives a vocational life if they're open to God. God has created every one of us to live with a purpose connected with the way he wired us, 
with the way He has shaped us through our experiences, good and bad. He wants to take all of it and just like stained glass windows, even take the fractured pieces and put them together so that His light can shine through them in new, unexpected and beautiful ways. Um, I have that sense. I have that sense for everybody. I certainly had it for myself. And I was pastoring First Baptist Church right down the road, carrying on an active ministry, an active civic life, and yet feeling this growing sense of a pull in a different direction, but not wanting to get ahead of God. And knowing that um, there was enough stress and pressure in my life as a congregational leader that I couldn't be absolutely sure whether it was God or fatigue talking. Have you ever been there? Okay. So um, what happened to me was I actually decided to get still, to get quiet. I, I will confess it that sometimes my faith is awfully energized by my own willful energy with the way I can cook up um, the mental, emotional, volitional side of my existence and um, out of the expectations of that get what I'm anticipating, including the sense of God's presence. And I decided I was going to get still and let go of all of that activity. Now the used morning time of devotion is a special time to do that. And something interesting happened when I did. I experienced dead silence. I experienced something different from what I experienced in the past when I, with a willingness of spirit, sort of relaxed and let go and entered into what the Bible describes as waiting on the Lord. How do you describe that experience? Here's how I would describe it. Have you ever been in a room... Um, you know, like here at the church or somewhere else, where the um, air conditioning system stops and the air handler is no longer working? Ever been in a room like that where all of a sudden the air just gets super still and, um, and, and, and then the air gets kind of heavy uh, and stuffy? You, you, the interesting thing about that is that when the air conditioning uh, was running... Um, the air handler was doing its work, there was this kind of buzz or hum in the background, but you'd forgotten about it. You'd, you'd become so used to it that you no longer noticed it was there. But when it stops, its absence is what you notice. Um, well, that's what it felt like for me. I entered into the stillness and noticed the silence and noticed that the air wasn't moving. You know, it is, it is interesting... I think it is uh, profoundly significant that both in Hebrew and in Greek, the primary languages of the Bible, um, that, that uh, the word for spirit is the same as the word for wind or breath. I think that's really powerful because there is, uh, in biblical terms, this deep and abiding sense in which not only did God breathe into the nostrils of Adam, so that Adam became a living soul. But God does that every single time a human being is born. When Audrey this morning breathed her first breath in life, it was the spirit of the joyful God saying yes. 
to his creative handiwork and saying, live, live. Not only did it happen at that moment with birth, it is the sustaining reality of every breath we take from that moment forward. And it is the withdrawing, the withholding of that breath that brings life to an end. And so it is in spiritual terms that God breathes God's spirit into us and we live. And what I sensed was that that air was no longer moving. And that kind of dead silence is unnerving. Um, unnerving indeed. I, I would guess this morning that um, many of you in this room have experienced times like that for a variety of reasons. And so the question that is the subtitle of my book and the title of this morning's message is very relevant. What do you do when God won't answer? How do you handle that dead silence? What do you do when you've got questions and there aren't answers? You know, the church you're pastoring has challenges and options that defy easy resolution and you as a leader need answers so you pray for guidance what do you do when God won't answer you find yourself at a vocational turning point so you pray for clarity what do you do when God won't answer one of your best friends in the world and a confidant in your life falls gravely ill and you pray for a miracle beyond what could be expected, and, and then he dies. What do you do when God won't answer? You go months, you go years, with a sense of God's dead silence, and you follow the prophetic remedy with its reassurances, you will seek me, and you will find me, when you search for me with all your heart. What do you do when God won't answer? You know, that's the backdrop for the experiment I engaged to put myself and then keep myself as best as possible in a position to receive a desperately desired grace from God. And this book captures um, what I experienced through the process that came having set on that strategy. And here, was the, here was basically the idea. Um, I had gone months without the sense of, of God's presence, wanting clarity, wanting, by this point, just any sense that God was out there, hello, hello. And, um, and so one day it, it hit me. Okay, God, if you won't speak to me any other way, I will look for you, I will listen for you in the echo of your words gone by. I will listen for you in the words of Jesus. And, um, and so I went to Matthew. Because it was the first place in, in, in the New Testament where Jesus speaks, if you're just following it sequentially through uh, the book. And um, it's interesting. Uh, for me, it was what I call a red-letter experiment. How many of you know what I mean when I say red-letter? Okay. Some of you do and some of you don't. Um, I grew up, in fact, when I was a kindergartner, my grandparents, as a gift to me, gave me a faux-leather New, King James Version, red letter edition of the Bible with my name embossed on the front in gold. 
I can see some of you had the same kind of thing. It had these neat pictures that I could look at when I was trying to survive worship services. Uh, it, it had a genealogy between the Old Testament and the New Testament that allowed me to, to sort of um, uh, imagine back through time to my forebears uh, and what, what their lives were like. But it had red letters. Um, I have probably 50 Bibles on my shelf. Way too many. Um, but, you know, I collect them. It's, I'm, I'm a professional. Uh, and so, so uh, but I only have one, and it's that red letter edition of the Bible that I got when I was in kindergarten. And in fact, soon after I got it, I dropped it in the rain. And so it's that onion skin that's all crinkly and stuff like that. But, but that was it. it. It was old enough that it, it had begun to crack, and so I used um, masking tape on it. And uh, quite, I should have brought it with me. It's, uh, it was a treasure to me. And what happened then was each morning... I would go to my uh, chair um, in the pre-dawn hours, turn on the lamp, I had my Bible, and I had a journal uh, in my uh, hand, and I sat there, and I opened up and just started at the first place where the red letters appeared and did one set of red letters each day. I would read. I would project myself, my imagination, into the scene, and I would um, then engage in a conversation with Jesus who had something to say in the context of that particular story. Um, and I would then, with pen in hand in my journal, write out my conversation with Jesus. And it became my daily one-sided conversation with the silent God. There were days when I was amazed at Jesus. I was one of the disciples stupefied by his splendor by His wisdom, by His power and authority, all of that sort of stuff. There were other days when I was a disciple on the short end of the stick. Now He's pointing a finger at me and forcing me to confront myself in ways that weren't particularly pleasant. There were days when I was a person in need, like the man with the withered hand, stretching as far as I could, hoping that He would touch my hand and go the rest of the way because I could only go so far with this faith that I was holding on to. Um, there were days when I even had to admit that my place in the story was more like Jesus' enemies. There were things in me that made me more like the Pharisees and their judgmentalism and legalism. It made me uh, more, more like um, the, uh, some of the, the desperate characters in Jesus' parable. And I, I would enter into that story and, and allow it to shape and form me. But I also have to say to you, there were days when I let God have it. When I had things to say to Jesus because what he was saying didn't match up with my reality. I mentioned during Bible study hour, one of those was when I got to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following. And he's saying, don't be anxious about what you'll wear, what you'll eat, what you'll drink. God you know, knows what you need, will see to you. He compares our experience to the birds of the air, the flowers of the field, and you know, how they're here one day, gone the next, and God still loves, for them, loves them and cares for them. How much more will He care for you? And I was reading those words against the backdrop of a much less than simple set of circumstances and wondering if indeed that were true. Wondering if, in light of my experience... Um, it weren't really more true that God would sometimes take care of us, but other times let us fall. I'm just here to say to you that as I 
continued through that experiment. I, uh, I wasn't just a, a passive, uh, gentle spirit going meekly with the words of Jesus. I was um, full of questions and concern. And at one point, in fact, as the silence continued, I reached a point when uh, a question entered my head. Very unpleasant question. Greg, what if none of the stuff you've believed through the years is true? What if our world is not a world created by a good and faithful God, but our world is simply the product of chance and natural selection? What if um, there is no God and you're in this universe on your own? Imagine there's no heaven. And out of, um, out, out of a, a, just a, a discipline of mind, I um, read some of the materials of well-known atheists today and said, give me your best shot. If you can make a case for a world without God, I will not happily, but I will, um, with a sense of resignation, yield the faith of a lifetime and restructure my life around a different worldview. I will mention to you that um, though I learned some really interesting things and, and uh, came to appreciate the, the brilliance of some of that, ultimately they could not convince me. And at the bottom line, I found that even when I would step over and try my footing on the shores of a world without God, it was moments only before I'd find myself talking to God again. It turned out I was uncurably spiritual. Um, this journey lasted for eight months, and I, I will cut to the chase to tell you what the culminating stage of the process was for me. Um, in a way that, that so closely marks the dramatic arc of the Gospel of Matthew that uh, it seems fictional rather than non-fictional, but it is true. When I, when I got to the climactic stage of Jesus' life and his willingness to yield whatever power and authority he could have used to choose a different fate from what he did, but instead walked into Jerusalem, accepted what it looked like would happen, and allowed himself to be arrested and hung out to dry by a kangaroo court brutally beaten and crucified, only to end up on a cross with the sense of the absence of the one whose presence was the total sum center of his every breath in life. That when I put my life up against that life, it took the wind out of my arrogant sails. <laughs> and it brought me to quietness again. And I realized I needed the generous offer Jesus extended to me along with the rest of the disciples when he held the bread and the cup and said, Take, do this in remembrance of me. And I knew I needed to go to the cross again. I needed to die in hopes that I might live. And I went with Jesus to the cross, hoping to come out the other side alive and well. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. On Easter morning, sitting in the chair where I had for eight months, 
a light, not a physical light, the ceiling was still intact, a warm light fell across my lap. And the inner sense of the renewal of God's presence, quietly, it didn't flood, it just quietly filled my heart again. And I had the sense of being in the presence of the living God. It was months later until clarity came. That was January, and um, clarity came um, in, in the spring that followed. But, uh, and, and I do capture that in an afterward in case you want to know the rest of the story. But more to the point now, and I'll draw it to a close. The question is a good one. What do you do when God won't answer? And the answer is not that um, there are tidy answers to all of life's questions. Ultimately, the answer is, I found God to be good again through my dark night of the soul and found um, an awful lot uh, that I had forgotten and new depths of understanding that I'd learned. Um, I thought I was reading the life of Jesus and it turned out Jesus was reading my life. And I realized um, that as long as I live, I will never be able to fully wrap my mind around God or get God to do the things I want God to do. God will not always satisfy every question with an answer that is easy to grasp. But God's presence will be true. And I keep finding myself able to say, I can trust that. And indeed I might say, as we just sung, Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all have questions and we all have longing. We also know that we're unfinished products and there are things you have to say that are more important than the things we have to say. We place ourselves before you and ask that in your goodness and grace, you would visit us. That you would surround us. That you would surround us with your grace, with your love in the daylight and the dark. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.